Good morning. It is with some sadness that we come to the end of Genesis. The title of this message is The End of the Beginning. The text will be Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 26. We have arrived now at the end of this first book of God's holy scripture in what a journey it has been. In some order, but not really, we have dealt with creation, the fall of man, murder, the evilness of men, world destruction by God, world rebuilding by God, new civilization, scattering of the men, deception, God's judgment on cities, a godly covenant, the promises of God, more deception, brothers against brothers, famine, etc., etc., etc. Themes that we see throughout the scripture of the way men act are things that we see throughout the world, even to this day. As J.C. Ryle said so long ago, lock me in the deepest dungeon with a candle and a Bible, and I will tell you what the world is doing. It has certainly been an exciting and a fascinating study in this history book. Do not forget this. This is a history book. It is not a, myth, a mythology. It is not a poem. It is a history, and it's the history of us. Virtually every paragraph introducing something new and or exciting and or shocking and or redemptive or about God's promises. But the backdrop of the entirety of this book settles right on Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15. Where God said these words after the fall. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel the proto-evangelion, the pre-gospel to the gospel that is coming. It is that backdrop that sets the stage for the entirety of the book of Genesis and arguably the entirety of the book itself. This book of Genesis proceeds to tell us how 315 will play out in man's history. We could say, let the reader understand. And that's what Israel is hearing too. After their long captivity of 400 plus years, they find themselves firmly never having left the timeline of God's redemptive plan. And in this, these last few verses of this last chapter of Genesis, we will find out or see God's redemptive plan on the lips of a dying man. Verse 15. We could 
perhaps say that the next couple verses, 15 through 18, we could maybe put a question mark out there and say, did God's promises fail? Did God's promises fail? Because these are the words of the brothers of Joseph. Now remember last week, Jacob was buried. Jacob was buried last week through that long section of scripture that we did, and now we come to the brothers. Then Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. They said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and returns back to us all the evil which we dealt against him? We could say that what if Joseph acts just like we did? What if Joseph is a man like we are? This, these particular verses, in verse 16 it says then, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father commanded before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they dealt evil against you. So now please forgive the transgression of the slaves of the God of your father. And I'm going to stop right there for a moment. This is that backdrop. They are wondering if, if, if Joseph is going to be like they are. If Joseph is going to carry hatred on into the future after the father has died. The father was the stopgap for anything that was going on. The love that Joseph had for his father, from their perspective, was preventing Joseph from doing anything to them. But now the father is gone. The patriarch is dead and buried in Canaan. They are still living in Egypt, in Goshen, and if we remember, it is prime real estate. And how did they get the prime real estate? It was because of their brother, Joseph. You see, it seems that they are forgetting many things that have happened. They are forgetting that there is an overall redemptive plan that is in place. And they have seen redemption being played out through their brother, whom they sold into slavery. It, this redemption is a shining star there above everything. It's providing the light uh, for how we can see what is going on here through this family. You see, these brothers, and I just ask that you give me some time on this because I can't help but think about these brothers and what they are thinking they are projecting upon their brother, Joseph, who they have treated very poorly, their own behavior, which I mentioned before. They can't see how somebody could be different than they are. We do the same thing. We judge everybody based on the way we react. We project those feelings that we have on everybody else. 
And in turn, what they're doing in this situation is they are projecting what they know about God based on what they have done. You see, instead of God being able to act as God acts, they are saying that God must act the way we do. We are made in God's image. God is not made in our image. We've forgotten that. The issue here with the brothers then, they have this guilt that is weighing them down. Perhaps their only reprieve had been when they sold their brother into slavery. Well, he's going to be a slave forever. We'll never see him again. Or hopefully he's dead. Then the shock comes when they find out that not only is he alive, but he has flourished. And not only has he flourished, he isn't just a businessman in Egypt, he is second in command. He holds the keys of life and death in Egypt. They, hand, they are right in his right hand. You know why? Because he's in control of all the food and all the commerce. And Pharaoh himself says that you have this power. And now his brothers, the ones who took control over him, the ones that threw him into a pit, the ones that sold him into slavery, are now under his command. And they can't quite possibly see how he could be, not only how he could forgive them, but how he could redeem them. You see, they're stuck in their own thinking. They're stuck in their own thinking. They would think, even perhaps, that Joseph's love for his father Jacob, Israel, was the only thing that prevented him from retaliating against them. Now for Joseph, this is just ludicrous. This is probably the most ridiculous thinking that could possibly be. You note at the end of of verse 17, it says, when he heard this, and Joseph wept when they spoke to him. How could they be so dense? How could they be so dull? Haven't they seen what has been happening? Look back to Genesis chapter 45. And look at verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. And they came near. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. So do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. So God sent me before you to establish for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive for a great remnant of survivors. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. Second time he said it. God sent me here. And he has set me as a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. God sent me here and he gave me the keys of life and death for Egypt. 
Hurry and go to my father. Say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has sent me as Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay, and you shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There, remember Joseph wept when he heard this from his brothers thinking that he would bear that grudge. He says, but look at verse 11, there I will also provide for you. For there are still five years of famine to come, lest you and your household and all that you have be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see the, in the eyes of my brother Benjamin, see that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. So you must tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and all that you have seen. And you must hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept on them. And afterwards, his brothers talked to him. Joseph, when he hears that his brothers think he might hold a grudge against him, how quickly they have forgot what he's done. The choicest land, I will look out for you. There's more famine to come five years. How quickly you've forgotten. Joseph, this one who has trusted in the Lord from long ago, we remember Genesis 39.2 with Potiphar's wife, the Lord was with me, or the Lord is with me. I want to say this about Joseph, and maybe you haven't considered this. You know, Joseph never heard from God. Joseph never saw God. Joseph didn't hear a voice from heaven. He didn't see ladders in the sky. He didn't have wrestling matches with angels or God by a river brook, by a river. He didn't hear audibly from God. Did you ever consider that? Have you ever thought about that? He didn't have a book. He didn't have the scripture. He didn't have any of those things. He didn't have the occasions that his father had, that his grandfather had, great-grandfather had with the Lord. Yet he knew the Lord was with him. Yet he knew that God had sent him to Egypt that he knew and trusted in the plan of God that he would have heard from his father. That he trusted that it was God's working in that. Now, I grant to you that perhaps in prison it was hard to see. But, like we've mentioned before here, much like Hebrew, best understood read backwards, he can clearly see that God's hand was in it at all times. His experience shows that God has been with him the entire time. His father had told him that God is with you, and guess what? He believed it. And his faith is strong in what God is doing. Now, the brother's faith in God is being shown for what it is. Not a whole lot. They have seen the amazing work of the Lord in bringing a family back together. They have seen the amazing work of the Lord of bringing a lost son back to a mourning father. 
they have seen the Lord providing for not only their immediate family, but their far extended family and preserving them in Egypt in the land of Goshen. They have seen this happen. They have seen the power that, that Joseph wields, what has happened in his life. They have seen how Joseph has provided for them. Yet they have forgotten that God's hand is there. For them, the death of their father has ended all that they have learned about the Lord. At that moment of the last, of the sealing of the tomb for Jacob, for them it apparently is it because they're back to thinking wrongly. Our brother must hold this grudge against us, this this grudge that means uh, hostility and bitterness towards another. He must be bitter towards us. He's apparently been faking it for the last number of chapters, years. He must surely remember the evil that we have done and he will hold that against us and he will destroy us because of it. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers, in verse 18, then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your slaves. It is with great difficulty that I am trying to hold back from certain parts of this, this story, this, this narrative to we get there and you just must see redemption is here. We're seeing redemption played out in a family, but it's going to tell a greater story about redemption that is there. This call out that they've made then in 17 and 18 is the, is the call out of a dying father for forgiveness of a debt towards their brothers. A pleading and the falling on their faces that they are begging for their lives. Their sin against their brother has been brought right to the forefront of them. They cannot forget what they've done. Uh, they, they are afraid that it is coming to a head and that destruction is right on the horizon. But, verse 19, godly truth, the godly truth of godly promises, right? The godly truth of godly promises. When God promises to do something, he will do it. And we're going to see a little play out here. In verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Why are you afraid of me? Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? You know the God who sent me here. You know the God who was with me when I was in prison falsely. That same God, I, I'm not taking his place. I'm not that one. Do not fear. All that has brought them to this point is the Lord's work. Therefore, do not fear. God has been the prime mover in your physical salvation that is occurring. It is God's place for vengeance, if there is any, not Joseph. Now, of course, this does come right off the blessings and in parens curses that came from their father. 
Certainly, there was stinging rebuke that some of the brothers had heard. Simeon and Levi, how they had taken vengeance for their, for their sister Dinah and slaughtered a whole city. Perhaps our brother will do the same to us, because look how we reacted. Again, they're, assuming, they're not only assuming that Joseph will act like they would, to a degree they're also assuming that God will act the same way. We tend to put ourselves in God's place also. We assume God will act just like we act towards other people. When somebody asks for our forgiveness and we say we forgive them, but we keep remembering it, When we keep bringing it up, when it clouds our relationship, we're not acting like God, we're acting like us. Psalm 50, verse 21. Psalm 50, verse Under the psalm where God as judge, verse 21, it says, These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought I, God, was just like you. You see, God is not like us. And Joseph is pointing and says, Am I in God's place? Verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to do what has happened on this day, to keep many people alive. A story of salvation is what God has done through things that we would not expect. God has done these things uh, God has been there when I was thrown into the pit, all part of his plan, all part of his plan to be sold into slavery, all part of his plan to be accused by Potiphar's wife, all part of his plan to be falsely imprisoned, all part of his plan to be forgotten in the prison, all part of his plan for Pharaoh to have dreams, and for me to interpret them, for me to be placed in second in command. For me to be given the keys of life and death in Egypt. It's all part of God's plan. You meant this thing for evil. You uh, went to accomplish this thing out of hatred against me. But God meant it for good. Good in Hebrew is tov. He meant it for good. In order to do what has happened on this day to keep many people alive. The implication is that God had not done that, many would have died in the famine. But God chose to save. You see, brothers, you're thinking wrongly. You're not trusting in what God is doing. Psalm 56, 5. 
to them. This is the salvation for the foreigner. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. You see, that's part of the Lord's plan. Part of the Lord's plan is to save. And the way in which God is saving is not necessarily the way in which we would choose to save. And what Joseph is saying here is, look, what has happened on this day, God has done this, these things that led up to this point, in order to save many people, including you. You who have sinned against not only me, but have sinned against Yahweh yourself, he has done this to save you. It is God of Job chapter 5, verse 9, who does great and unsearchable things. Wonders, wonders without number. God does great and unsearchable things and wonders without number. This is the Lord, the God that Joseph trusts in. So do not be afraid, verse 21. So now, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke to, what? Their heart. Because of the faith that has been given to Joseph, he is extending that grace and mercy to his brothers. Joseph sees clearly, more clearly the hand of God than his brothers do. And because he sees it clearly, he must, he's instructing them. He's telling them about this God who has done all these things. You can't see beyond your nose. But look at these great things that the Lord has done to bring this family together in a pagan land in Goshen. Look at what the Lord has done to save. Look at all the Lord has done to save you. Not only to save you, but these are going to be the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what the Lord's work look like. It looks like. It's the long game. It's, the, uh, it, it's the, the plan of redemption that plays out through epochs of time, through millennia, through, as I said last week, through, through the death of a patriarch, on the, on the lips of Jacob trusting in the Lord, and we're going to see on the lips of Joseph trusting in the plan of redemption and the promises of God. Do not be afraid. Joseph has no intention of harming his brothers. Instead, he is providing for them. Have comfort in this. I said I will do this and I will do it. That little is three verses right there which now lead into the death of Joseph. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of Makar, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. 
Again, we see the grandchildren are a gift. We read that out of Proverbs the other week. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Notice how he is relying on the promises that were given to the patriarchs. The promises that would have been told to him. Because remember, he has not heard directly from the Lord. He has not had the experience that these others have had. Notice how he says that he will surely bring you up to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Remember these promises that were given to them. These promises that we now have written in a book. We could say to ourselves, remember the promises that were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not be afraid. Remember those promises that will surely come to pass. Do not be afraid. Remember those promises that were given so long ago when Joseph remembered the Lord was with him through all these things. He will surely do this. Verse 25, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, now notice, this isn't just a casual, just do whatever you want to. This is swearing to make certain that you know, saying God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him, and he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. So, notice how Joseph isn't burying back in the land of Canaan yet. Notice how it will be when they bear his bones out of Egypt 400 years from now, or so, that then he will take his bones back. It anticipates what's happening in the future. Joseph is anticipating the ongoing continuance of God's promises and God's faithfulness to his people. Joseph is an example of that faith that moves mountains. And I can't stress enough to you that this is a man who did not hear directly from the Lord. He did not see ladders, did not have wrestling matches, did not hear audibly from the Lord, but trusted with faith in the promises that were given. He is that example of faith that moves mountains until his last breath. Until he draws his last breath. He trusts in the promises of the Lord even though he will not see them. Remember, isn't it uh, Deuteronomy 3? I think it's around Deuteronomy 3, somewhere in there. It just sticks in my mind. Remember, Moses trusts in the promises of God. He asks again to see the promised land, and what does the Lord say? No. But you can look. You can go up on the hill and look. But Moses trusted in the promises 
even though he wouldn't see them, even though he wouldn't be buried there. Joseph trusts in those promises, even though he won't see them play out. We can say our job then is to trust in the promises, even though we might not see the day of the second coming. High above everything in these passages is that proto-evangelion, that promise of the Savior in Genesis 3.15. Redemption is that theme, and I'm going to spell out a few things as we go further on in the conclusion here. Because the promise of that redemption there ends with the type of redeemer here. In 3.15, you get the promise of redemption, And in the end, in Genesis chapter 50, you get a type of redeemer. And it's Israel. It's Israel of enslavement in Egypt that has been born through a split sea that is hearing this about redemption. The title again was the end, uh, the end of the beginning because there is so much more that is here. Genesis is like the prelude to the magnum opus that God has written of the redemptive story, of the redemptive plan. Genesis 3.15 then forms the backdrop for all that has happened throughout Genesis. And in Genesis 50 here is the culmination of this history of Genesis. That exclamation point that shows all the intrigue and follies and foibles of God's chosen men and women who were still part of his plan of redemption. Here at the end we find Joseph, who trusts in the promises of the Lord, and who learned to trust in those promises of the Lord. Now I want you to think again for a second. If you look around you, look in your hand, look in the, right in front of you there, you're going to find a Bible. A copy of God's holy word written for the benefit of us. We, here, like right there, thousands of pages, right? Uh, footnotes, cross-references, indexes in the back, chapters, verses, conveniently located in one volume for us. It tells us about God's promises, tells us about God's plan of redemption, tells us what God has done, what God is going to do. And now think again for a second, Joseph didn't have that. Didn't have any of that. Didn't have those encounters, no speaking, no angels. He trusted in the promises as were told by others to him. But we can confidently say that he probably knew the Lord better and deeper than many of those that had come before him. You can see it by his actions. You can see it by the way he lived that belief how he redeems his brothers. He trusted in the promises of the Lord and lived a life trusting in those promises even as he goes to his grave. 
right thinking about the Lord then, right thinking about the Lord helps us navigate a world that has gone mad. We, you, us, through the knowledge of the scripture, know that the Lord is bringing about all the things that are necessary in his great plan of redemption. We must remember that you are redeemed through God and through his son, Jesus Christ, and not through the world. Therefore, we are not to fret or concern ourselves over the things that are unknown because God does what? 1 John 3.20 tells us this. 1 John 3.20. Because God, do not fret over these things. And whatever our heart condemns us for, God is greater than our heart and God what? He knows all things. And we worry not over what will happen tomorrow, for it has been decided before time began. Isaiah 46.10. And don't be distressed over the state of your soul when you're found in Christ Jesus, because you are already seen in residence in a heavenly kingdom. Ephesians 2.6. Think about this for a moment. We talked about it in a, a class this morning. While Jesus was being nailed to the cross, Jesus was thinking about you prior to you being born. Not only that, he knew the sins you were committing, would commit, and would commit past the point of the day that you were saved. You were in his mind when he was being crucified. Your date of birth was in his mind the day that he was murdered. Think about the things that God has done to redeem us. The end of Genesis, then, is a microcosm of the gospel message. The, the first book of the Bible ends with a foretaste of the Messiah to come. You see, they, the brothers, attempted to kill the one who would save them. We killed the one who would save us. They assumed Joseph was dead, or at least enslaved forever. We assumed that Jesus was dead in a tomb. They discovered Joseph alive and enthroned to the second highest position in the land. We have discovered that Jesus enthroned at the highest position above all things. The brothers sinned against their brother and deserve his wrath. We have sinned against God and deserve his wrath. They assumed that the vengeance of Joseph was upon them and there was no hope. We assumed that the vengeance of the Lord was upon us and that there was no hope. They were fearful and contrite toward the one who holds the power of life and death in his hands. 
We are fearful and contrite towards the one who holds the power of life and death in his hands, the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus the Christ. They learned that the plan of God in crushing their brother was to save many. We learned that the crushing of the Son of God was to save many. They learn from the mouth of their brother that they are saved and forgiven, and we learn from the mouth of God that we are saved and forgiven through the second Adam, Jesus Christ. God's ultimate plan was to bring calamity upon his son, to bear the sins of many. Yes, it was the evil of men that nailed his son to the cross, but ultimately, as Genesis 50, 20 tells us, it was to keep to save many people was God's plan. Romans 8:28, and we know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are according to who those who are called according to his purpose, redeeming sinners for his glory through the blood of his only son, Jesus Christ, the only one through which you can be saved. That is his plan for saving many. The crushing of the sun, the blood spilled on the ground, is the precious blood of the lamb that saves you and me. That was God's plan of redemption. It was the plan of redemption that Joseph would trust to come to pass. The fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, even though he would not see it or understand it fully in his lifetime. He probably did not even know that his story would be one that we would be telling today, 3,000 plus years after he was put in the ground. That we would look back upon that story of God's redemption of this family and say to yourself, this is how God has preserved the line through redeeming of a family. And he has preserved that line so that the Savior would be born at the exact right time to save many, including all here who are found abiding in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, your word never ceases to amaze. Your word is that thing that penetrates our once hardened hearts, that allows us to understand your plan, that it is for your glory that you have chosen to save sinners. We ask that you continue to soften our hearts towards your word, to grant us lives that are full of mercy and grace towards others, that we might be that shining beacon of, uh, of the message of hope that you have given. Please be with us throughout this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.